the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to the 2024th year of the Common Era and the first episode of Season 9 of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Jason Reed and Rick Lee. We hope you all survive the season of overwrought hallmarkitude and are ready to kick off another year with us here at the Hotel Bar. And as we've done in past seasons, we're kicking off this new season with a trip to the movies to see what underlying philosophical ideas and insights we can pull out of one of our favorite films. For season nine, we chose, drumroll please, the original 1960 The Magnificent Seven. Before we get started, though, we want to take a moment to express our genuine gratitude to each and every one of you out there in podcast land who have joined us and make us part of your podcast listening. Your support has been the fuel behind our unbelievable growth over the past two years, and we can't thank you enough for making Hotel Bar Sessions what it is today. So maybe I've had one too many, but I'm going to talk honestly for a moment. (laughs) To keep the drinks coming and to keep our ideas flowing, and those are intimately connected, we need your continued support. Running a podcast comes with its costs, and while we really love doing this, we really can't do it without your help. So if Hotel Bar Sessions has become one of your favorite intellectual watering holes, consider supporting us financially. Actually, every contribution, no matter how big or how small, makes a difference. Also, we want to hear from you. Yes, you, the listeners. What burning questions, dilemmas, or topics keep you up at night? We're always trying to come up with new topics, and we'd appreciate some contribution. Your suggestion might be the start of an upcoming episode. I want to echo Rick and Jason's thanks to you listeners and appeal for you to donate to the podcast and also give us your ideas and contributions. But for now, we want you to grab your favorite beverage, settle in, and let's kick off season nine. So our usual fashion is to go around the bar and get some drink orders and some rants or raves from everyone. So let's do it again. I'll go first. Since we're talking about a Western and since in Westerns only three beverages are ever consumed, whiskey, coffee, and water, and the last only under duress, really, I'm going (laughs) to saddle up to the bar and have a whiskey. And I'm going to rant about the neoliberal university. I know that's a big topic and probably should be a topic for an entire episode. And specifically, I'm thinking about this whole tendency to treat everyone who does anything at a university as a vendor and to have to register through these complicated vendor programs, which are really more suited for the people who supply the copy paper and other (laughs) services to the university. And if you're just a lone little faculty member who gave a lecture at a university, you're confronted with all this online registering. It means nothing to you. But if you don't do it, you don't get paid. And the worst thing about it is these software keeps a memory. If you gave a talk at the same university system sometimes, it remembers your old address address, and you then have to deal with the fact that it wants to send a check to a place you haven't been to in like the past (laughs) seven years. I realize this is a job and I'm a vendor on some level, but dealing with a machine that's not made for the thing you're doing, and it's incredibly frustrating. All right, Rick. What about you? I'm going to go with one of my standbys. I'm going to have a Manhattan, and I am raving about the website, The Infinite Conversation. (laughs) 
I don't know if you have heard about this, but this is a completely AI-driven conversation between Werner Herzog and Slavo Žižek. <laughs> it just keeps running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you don't mind, let me just play a little bit of that for all of you. Did you have this kind of ecstatic experience where you felt like you were entering into a great cosmic order? <laughs> Did it unblock something in you or what? It is difficult to describe, but I will try. The project was very clear from the beginning. I had seen such rapids with a steamship in Peru, and I had grave doubts. Should I do this? But then again, I was in an extraordinary posture. It was an absurdity to push this ship over a mountain. It was about overcoming challenges, about doing things for which there's no justification, for which there's no legitimate explanation. So I think you get the sense. Sometimes it sounds more like them theoretically, and it's just all completely AI-driven, and it's really wonderful. It sounds like hell to me. <laughs> Lee, what about you? Well, I'm going to follow Jason's lead and go with cowboy drinks, but I'm going to have a coffee with whiskey in it. <laughs> nice. And today I am actually raving about the new year. I know it's arbitrary that we pick this random day to say this is a new start for everything. And there are probably good reasons to pick any other day to say the same things. But, you know, I had a really terrible 2022 and a almost as terrible 2023. And so I'm going to say this is going to be my year. I know that's a gambler's fallacy, but hey, you know, <laughs> I gamble. <laughs> I'm gambling on this year not being as bad as the last two. All right. Well, today, as I said, we're going to be talking about our most recent trip to the movies where we went to go see Rick's favorite film or one of Rick's favorite films, the original 1960. And that's important. The original 1960 <laughs> version of the John Sturges Western, The Magnificent Seven. So, Rick, how do you want this conversation to go? So I want to thank you for indulging me because this film is a bit personal for me. It was a favorite movie of a teacher who had a really big impact on me, Father Dan Mayall. He loved to quote the funny lines, and maybe we'll get to some of those in our conversation. And he was constantly going around convincing people to watch it. So The Magnificent Seven, as Lee said, we're watching the 1960 version, not the more recent remake. Historians, film critics, and film theorists all say that it has a significant place in the history of the Western as a genre in the U.S. Some people have claimed that it is, in fact, the last true Western. The movie practically says this itself. Now, it's a remake of Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film, The Seven Samurai, but it places it in a different genre, and it places it, obviously, in a different cultural context. Kurosawa, by the way, apparently told John Sturgis that he really loved this film. The Magnificent Seven deals with questions of the use of force, the capitalist function of thieves and bandits, the meaning of courage, and the loss that war brings. And by the way, it has a fucking amazing score, <laughs> written by Elmer Bernstein. So why are we watching this film? To quote from it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs>
So if we haven't noted this already, we are watching the 1960 <laughs> original version of The Magnificent Seven, not the 2016 Denzel Washington version, which is a remake, and not the movie of which The Magnificent Seven is a remake, which is the Kurosawa <laughs> film The Seven Samurai. So I hadn't seen The Seven Samurai, and I had not seen the most recent remake of The Magnificent Seven. This was my first time watching the 1960 The Magnificent Seven. So I'm going to assume that there have got to be listeners out there who are like me, just being introduced to this film. So Rick, could you just give us a short plot summary? So the film opens in a small Mexican village, mostly an agrarian community. Well, I think it's exclusively an agrarian community. A group of bandits comes into the village, led by a man named Calvera. It's clear that they come frequently to this village, and they basically rob the village of everything they have except what they need to keep on living. After this opening attack in the film, some of the villagers decide that they should try to do something about this to stop this from happening. So there's an old man in the village who is kind of their philosopher, and they ask him what they should do, and he says, go up north to the border, you'll be able to find guns there. So they go up north, they run into a man named Chris, played by Yule Brenner, who is a gunfighter. They run into him because he impressively drove a hearse up to Boot Hill in order to bury what they call in the movie an Indian, that is, an indigenous North American person. The townspeople don't want him buried there, and the villagers are so impressed with the way Chris handled himself that they go to him and ask him if they could buy guns. And in one of my favorite lines in the movie, he says, why don't you buy men? Men are cheaper than guns. <laughs> so he helps them hire six other guns for hire, and he himself is the seventh. That's the Magnificent Seven. And off they go down to this village to, as they keep saying in the movie, shoo some flies away from this village. Calvera comes back. They protect the village. Calvera leaves. And it becomes clear that he's not going to stay away. He's going to keep coming and coming and coming. The villagers, some of them get a little skittish. They invite Calvera back into the village. And then there's a final battle when the Magnificent Seven return and finally, once and for all, rid the village of this bandit group and they kill Calvera. So, Rick, before we get into the meaning of this film and the themes in this film and why I think you want to argue that this film might have been the last Western. Can I just read you the original review that was published in The Hollywood Reporter about this film? Sure. It says, quote, The Magnificent Seven has the stars and the production values to open big, and it probably will, but it is not a success as a story or as entertainment. About two-thirds of the film is good, tough, unromantic, period, Western. About one-third is sentimental nonsense that bushwhacks the remainder. <laughs> it is as if someone decided the picture wasn't commercial enough, and in adding so-called commercial values, 
a good picture was sabotage. <laughs> well, you know what I love about that review is this comes at a time where there were a number of Westerns. As historians and film critics have noted, these Westerns helped U.S. society deal with the Cold War, with the U.S.'s involvement in Korea and eventually Vietnam. And by the way, the U.S. involvement in Vietnam started around 1955. So it was already starting to ramp up in 1960. And so I think the critics' hatred of the sentimentality is kind of a desire for going back to, you know, there were good guys and they kicked the living shit out of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Right was right and wrong was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think this movie is a bit more complicated. There's, of course, the story of Seven Samurai and the remake and so on, but the plot has been copied so many times. The plot of a small, beleaguered group taking on these powerful people. I mean, it's Bugs Life, Battle Beyond the Stars, which is an early Star Wars ripoff, was a similar sort of thing. There are probably more I can think of. I mean, it's one of those plots you can just insert any X, you can do aliens, you can do bugs, you can do whatever, <laughs> and tell this story again. And it does have an interesting relationship between the peasantry and the gunslingers and the samurai, where it's a very un likely partnership because under different circumstances the gunfighters could be taking advantage of the farmers or the samurai of the peasants which i think is where the sentimentality comes from right it's an unlikely kind of partnership that drives part of the film you put your finger right on it jason if there were no sentimentality, then these gunfighters would just simply go and take the stuff themselves. And in fact, Calvera offers them a partnership because he mm -hmm. can't believe they're there. You need that sentimentality to ground the relationship between the gunslingers and the farmers, as it is in The Magnificent Seven. But also, you raise another interesting point, and that is... I would argue that what this film depicts is the fact that the farmers have right on their side, but they don't have might. The gunfighters have might. And if they didn't also have right on their side, then this would be just a tale of brute force. But the fact that they're using their might for the sake of the good is what I think saves this story and makes it bear repeating. I think one of the things that you left out of your plot is that in traditional Westerns, gunslingers are either heroes or they're mercenaries. Right. And in this story, what we see is the transition from mercenary to hero. So they're just hired guns at first and later become not about the money. Harry plays an interesting role here because he's convinced there is actually money involved and Chris is just not telling him throughout the whole film, even until, spoiler alert, the moment he dies, he's still convinced that there's somehow money involved in all of this. Mm -hmm. But you're right. The rest of them all turn from mercenaries to heroes. I think it's also worth saying that all of them seem like they were really well-known gunfighters, yet there was no role for them to play anymore in the U.S. And at a couple of points in the movie, they talk about how the world has gotten civilized, and so there's no place for people like them anymore. So they're actually taking this job on the cheap, at least from <laughs> one perspective. Yeah, there's the one guy who says, I'm a very expensive hire, got paid $1,000 for this job, $2,000 for this job. And they said, you know, well, we're offering you $20. And he said, well, that's $20 more than I have. That's a lot of money right. for now. 
Right. It's good work if he can get it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because he's chopping wood at the time this happens. Yeah. Another moment that I think brings your point to the fore, Lee, is when Yul Brenner's character asks the villagers how much are they willing to pay. They take out everything they have and they say to him, I know it's not much, but it's everything we have. And Yul Brenner says, I've been offered a lot for my work but never everything. Mm. And that's a moment where you could see that he's already a bit of a hero because he recognizes what this means for the farmers, even though they can only afford to pay them so little that this is everything they have. And so in a sense, it's a lot. So I kind of want to go back to your original suggestion that this is the end of the Western because On the one hand, we can trace a lot of the themes of Westerns, of how heroes are made heroes and how heroes defeat mercenaries. So what is so different about this film? Well, one, and I already mentioned this, is starting already at the beginning, all of the gunfighting characters are constantly talking about how the world isn't the place for gunfighters anymore. Their role in society, now it's moved from the role of being heroic or even a tremendous and well-known villain. There's no place for that anymore. And so the film itself is kind of bemoaning the end of the very context that would make Westerns possible. And then to sort of bookend this, I think the last line of the movie for me is both enigmatic and compelling at the same time. Yul Brenner says, the old man was right. We lost. We always lose. I think that is a moment of saying this kind of situation is no longer appropriate to the cultural context. I mean, I think it's interesting at this point to think about the way in which a lot of Westerns are about the end of the Western. Like, a lot of Westerns, the gunslinger prepares in order that he will not be part of. Creates the law that then, once the law is laid down and once force is no longer needed, the gunslinger rides off into the sunset, as the cliche goes. I mean, you see this in Shane, the man who shot Liberty Valance. A lot of Westerns are about this idea that the gunslinger is creating a world that he doesn't have a place within. Just like a lot of Westerns are about the end of the Wild West, a lot of samurai movies are about the end of the samurai, or about them too being these figures who have this skill at violence that is no longer going to be needed in the world that they make possible. I mean, because of the Edo period and the Meiji Restoration, right, samurais were without a role anymore once Japan was unified and so on. The same way, once the West was quote-unquote won, there was no longer a need for a gunslinger. And I think it's interesting to think about these two iconic figures that have played such a role in their own respective culture as well as in global culture of such a thing as possible and how they both had this idea about violence as something that has a place, is in some sense admired with some kind of ambiguity, but has to kind of pass away. Because that's what makes the cowboys the heroes, is that they're willing to go away, right? They're willing to leave the village and set up this regime of peace that really, I mean, Chico goes back because he has this, what, that's a whole other story. But, you know, (laughs) they don't really have a place in anymore, right? If they stuck around and continued, they would in some sense become the villain again, Mm. or they'd become the source of a violence that they're trying to cast out. I think it's also important to remember that part of the conceit of the Western was 
the contest between the law and what's outside the law. And Mm -hmm. in many ways, that was interesting, both cinematically and thematically, because the West was figured as this lawless place, right? Where either you were on the side of the law or you were not on the side of the law. And our two protagonists, well, the two main figures of the Magnificent Seven, are both people who were gunslingers who were offered positions as the law, right? And both who note the fact that they turned it down. Somebody tried to offer me a badge and I turned it down. And what they see happening is that this obvious distinction between the law and what is outside the law is really breaking down. As is, by the way, this obvious distinction between those with force and those without force. That's one of the things that makes me kind of agree with Rick that This is the last of the Westerns, or at least a real upsetting of the Western trope. And also maybe the introduction, and I know I've talked about the antihero before, but like a real antihero. Yeah. What you're saying, Lee, reminds me of the point I made earlier about the relationship between Westerns and the Cold War, because from the end of World War II through most of the 50s, There was in the U.S., and I could imagine in places like Western Europe, an excitement about the U.S.'s role in setting up and ensuring an order that is a certain kind of lawfulness. I think the perception of people in the U.S. was we're the global police force, we're the ones keeping law and order, and those dirty Soviet bandits are just going to pillage and Mm -hmm. plunder. Starting already in 1960, I would say slightly earlier, there comes to be a bit of suspicion about that and a recognition that the United States' use of force is not as clean and clear-cut as we imagined earlier, that the police can maybe engage in actions that are not entirely on the up and up. And I think that this is one of the first films that is starting to struggle with that in the genre that was used in order to work out earlier Cold War mentality that people had in the U.S. People today might be willing to say, okay, look, the U.S. had a big military, they had a ton of nukes, and they kept the Soviet Union from being aggressive. But now we know that the U.S. itself was also aggressive, and that force was not as morally clean as was initially presented or thought. Yeah, and part of seeing that is realizing that the Cold War wasn't the only war. We were fighting a lot of proxy wars, and we were the bandits. Yeah, exactly right. Or gunslingers. Yeah, and it was never clear why we were one or the other in any given context, except for economic interest. Here at the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. 
If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App. And you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. So the question I want to ask is, do we see the Western as thoroughly intertwined with a particular moment of American politics and thus its decline has to be read against that moment? I mean, can you not make a Western post the 50s because of precisely that Cold War image of what the U.S. is supposed to be doing? Or does it pose a challenge to what the genre becomes? I'm really asking this question about the connection between genre and its historical moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be a genre essentialist and say that <laughs> the the Western was a way of working out the Cold War difficulties, and once the Cold War is over, the Western is over. But I do think there is this global geopolitical understanding. When that breaks down, what also breaks down is the notion of a hero is just all good, full stop never tinged with badness, ulterior motives, or unpure motives. I think those two come hand in hand. And then I think the traditional setup of the Western, as Lee was pointing out, then becomes either nostalgic or trite or backwards. And I think people just aren't interested in it. Mm. I mean, there was that one Western, I can't remember the name of it, more recently, where it's really just all about a competition. It's a gun drawing competition, not a duel, right? So no one's going to get hurt. There, it's not really a Western. You know, that could have been just as much about the 50-yard dash or about throwing darts in a pub or whatever. And so I don't have a theory about what Westerns have become because obviously they're still being produced. Well, I think that what your analysis brings to the fore is that this is a Western about the not-so-old West, you know? And I'm not sure that we really... I mean, maybe I shouldn't say this because I haven't seen the remake of The Magnificent Seven, which is, I'm sure, about the not-so-old Old West. But I imagine that we're coming to this kind of national realization in the mid 20th century Did I just say the mid-20th century as if it was a long time ago? Yes, Yes, you did. (laughs) Well, we were all born in the 1900s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but we were coming to this realization in the mid-20th century that there was, at least from the American perspective, there was a global shift in the relationship between not only the law and unlawful force, but also agrarian and civilized communities, honor and rights-based discourses. I mean, we could just go on and on. Yeah. And, you know, this is in the midst of the beat generation, the rise of the yippies who eventually become hippies and 60s protest movement, all of which I think is about just what you were saying, Lee, namely that the old values on which we relied now turn out to be suspect because those values were actually covering over a tremendous amount of injustice, and we refuse to acknowledge them any longer as values. 
So I'd like to talk about the not villainous parts of Calvera, who plays the primary villain in this episode. So Calvera, who's the leader of the banditos that pillage this town every year, but leave enough for the villagers to survive. We, of course, later learn in the film, spoiler alert, that he's only taking what his bandits need to survive. Is not exactly the villain we imagine him to be at the beginning of the film. I know, Rick, you think that there's a deep and complicated capitalist reading of this film (laughs) that has something to do with the bandits and the gunmen and the farmers. I want to give you a chance to kind of work that out for us. Well, I just think, as you pointed out, Lee, the villagers recognize that he doesn't take so much that they can no longer survive. In other words, he's expropriating the surplus value. And in that sense, he stands in for the capitalist in a capitalist system who also expropriates surplus value. And so on the one hand, I think there's this interesting moment where the one extracting surplus value is directly called a murderer and a thief. But then on the other hand, I think you're right, Lee, that there is a certain generosity he has and he feels a moral obligation to his own bandits to keep them fed. He's also living hand to mouth. And so I think there is an interesting capitalist relation underlying Calvera and the farmers that the film is also playing out in a morally ambiguous way. I think it's pointing out perhaps the capitalist as the paragon of moral virtue is one of those values that we can no longer abide by. Two quick things about that point. One, I completely agree with you that this is in many ways a battle between the lower classes, the bandits and the villagers. Mm. But I want to point out that there is one thing that he's taking that is not surplus value, and that is the rape of the women of the village. Which is only referred to indirectly. Of course. Yeah, I take your point. I don't want to keep coming back to Seven Samurai, but I did watch both in homework for this show. Oh, look what a good student Jason is. Yes. I get my gold star. (laughs) But I do find when you're dealing with remakes or revisions, I almost wish I watched the Denzel Washington one, even though I've never heard anything good about it. I'll watch Denzel in almost anything, though. I I watched the stupid Equalizer movie, so I don't know why I didn't watch this. But... One of the big differences between Seven Samurai and Innocent Seven is the Calvera character. The bandits in Seven Samurai, they're just like a force of nature. Mm. They barely ever speak. I mean, there's one scene where they're shown in silhouette against the town, and they basically say, oh, it's better to come back when the crops are ready. We'll raid the town then. And that's what starts the action going. But you never really get this personification. I do think that shift to making Calvera an actual character who, in some sense, sees himself as having a strange justification for what he's doing, Mm. both in his relationship to his bandits, but also in the sense that this is just the way things work out here. You know, like, he kind of is almost, like, offended that anyone seems to be taking this whole thing personally, because it's just the way things go. That They're the farmers, and they're the bandits, and that's just the way the world works. As you said, you know, when he meets the Magnificent Seven, he just figures he'll offer them a cut of the deal because it's all business right. to him. It's nothing other than that. 
Although his opening discussion with the guy who I guess we would all agree is the leader of the village, Soltero, is really interesting because Calvera starts by saying how much he loves the village. He loves it because the world outside there is changing rapidly. It's chaotic. It's become impersonal. He then talks about a loss of values and morality in the outside world. And religion. Well, and then he says, and they've lost religion. Then in an interesting moment, his sign of this is that in a big city, one of the largest churches, he went to rob that church and the vessels were not made of gold. Mm -hmm. And he was offended (laughs) by how cheap they were and how little religion mattered. But now, if I take seriously part of that, I think Calvera does have a certain admiration for the life and environment and society and community that the village represents. In a certain way, he would like to be in that position, but that ship has sailed. He can no longer do it. And maybe it is because this is just the way nature is, that I was made a scorpion and you were made frogs, and that's all I could do. Yeah, I mean, he says at one point, if God didn't want them to be sheared, why would he have made them sheep? I love that, yeah. And in that way, I do think that the character of Calvero really does translate almost perfectly into the kind of middle management, vice provost position in late capitalism. I believe that Calvero believes that he's on the side of the people below him. Yeah. I really do believe that he thinks... Yeah, I know I'm taking from you, but ultimately, this is keeping me and my people alive. This is keeping you and your people alive, or I should say, barely surviving. And it's better than being destroyed by what's above. That's right. Mm -hmm. Another group would come in and they'd be worse than I am. There's also an interesting moral moment when he's talking about how he once went to Texas and robbed a bank and they sent a whole army after him. And he's saying to the Magnificent Seven, you know, you guys could rob a bank and all they do is they send a sheriff after you. And that tells me that in Texas, only Texans can rob banks. And also the flip side of that is he says you should go below the border Mm. because Mm -hmm. then you could rob banks and only a sheriff would come after you as opposed to gunslingers that somebody might hire. Yeah. I was just thinking through your point, Lee, about Calvera occupying this role of a middle manager. I think you're right. He does see a kind of order here. From his perspective, he sees the Magnificent Seven as, in fact, upsetting what is already an established order. Mm-hmm. And he seems to have a difficult time figuring out why the villagers would want this especially, but then also why the Magnificent Seven would do this. And in fact, the line I quoted in my introduction comes up in this context. He says to the Magnificent Seven at one point, why would men like you come down here and protect a village like this? Steve McQueen's character, his name is Vin in the movie, he says, one time in Tucson, Arizona, a man took off all his clothes and jumped in a mess of cactus. I asked him the same question, why? He said, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Calvera wants to know why they're doing it. Steve McQueen at that moment won't say, we're here because it's the right thing to do. And here's the one point in the film where we see the obvious opposition between a kind of economic 
capitalist logic and a moral logic, mm. right? Because Calvera understands that there is a logic to what he's doing. And we see this when he has the chance to ultimately vanquish the Magnificent Seven and doesn't do that. He says, look, surrender your guns right now. I'll let you ride out of town. I'll even give you your guns back once you get out of town because there's an order to things. It's a basically economic order. You're upsetting it. It's not doing you right. It's not doing us right. It's not doing the villagers right. Let's fix it again. The Magnificent Seven are opposing that with some kind of moral order. You know, there is a right thing to do here. And Calvera just quite simply doesn't have the categories to understand that. Mm -hmm. That way of expressing it, Lee, was what I was groping at from the very beginning. That, in a sense, I think in the U.S. and probably other places on the globe that were aligned with the U.S. during the Cold War, the Cold War was seen as an order, and let's not upset this order. And so this got so far as, you know, we developed the mutually assured destruction policy where we have to have enough nukes so that if the Soviet Union would launch one, that we would destroy the entire planet. A mad policy indeed. Yeah. It turns out that mad was freaking nuts. <laughs> I think people began to see that, yes, there is an order here, but it is certainly not a moral order. It's not an order of justice. Right. I mean, mutually assured destruction is an economic order. Yeah. It's a Nash equilibrium. I mean, I think there's an economic order But in the film, it's also layered over, as we've already talked about, with nation, with the idea of there being a different set of rules south and north of the border, and also with race as well. And I think this is one of the places where there's an awkward translation from the original Seven Samurai to Magnificent Seven. Because I think one of the things the film has to answer is why don't the villagers just defend themselves, right? In order for the whole story to work, that has to be part of the plot. Of course, in the original Seven Samurai, took advantage of the fact that there was a system of castes in feudal Japan. You were born a samurai or you were not a samurai. You were born into it, trained into it, lived into it. And so to get samurais, to get people of a particular class, even as that class, as the movie says, is becoming desperate given the centralization of power and there are hungry samurai out there. Magnificent Seven sort of replaces that with the idea of you're either a farmer or you're a gunslinger, but there's a certain racial dynamic to that. Oh, holy in the cow, film yes. <laughs> all the villagers are kind of Mexican. I mean, they are Mexican, and there's a racialization of the difference between the simple farmer and the brave and upstanding gunslinger. You know, I do wish I watched the remake because I wonder how the remake would handle that because it seems like of all the things from the early 60s and should be left in the early 60s, that's the historical residue that seems the most problematic, as the kids say. (laughs) Sus. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's worth noting that there is an awful lot of brown face acting in this. And the portrayal of the villagers wavers between a kind of noble savage idea and country bumpkin backwards simpleton idea that is really offensive. By the way, the only one of the Magnificent Seven who's not white, namely Chico. Is German. He's a German. German. (laughs) (laughs) And yet they portray him as a Mexican. And the most stereotypical Mexican ever. Yeah. 
Yeah. For me, he's a really intriguing character, but I want to stay with this race issue just one more step. I mean, I do think, Jason, it's also interesting to point out Calveras is a gunslinger too. Mm -hmm. Calvera keeps indicating that he's a person just like they are. Mm -hmm. He identifies with them, and yet... They're the ones who the villagers look on as heroes. They never look on Calvera as a hero. They go to the Great White North, get a police force to come down, install a system of law and order that would allow them to now reap and collect their own surplus value. And so I think unbeknownst to itself, I don't know, I don't want to put intentionality in any aspect of this, but I think it does portray fairly vividly the way in which capitalist relations mid-20th century started becoming racial relations and class positions started aligning globally with race positions, which the Seven Samurai didn't have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Japan's not known for being a multiracial country. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance... You can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. Lee, you said something earlier that has been sticking with me, and I think we need to actually talk about it. This film doesn't come anywhere close to passing the Bechdel test (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. For almost half the movie, there are no women in it at all. Then the only female characters are children. Then it's discovered that the village was hiding the women outside of the village. So that they wouldn't be raped. Yeah, so that they wouldn't be raped because they thought the Magnificent Seven would be just like Calvera. And in an interesting moment, Chris, Yul Brenner's character, says, you hid them because you thought we would rape them. And we might have, but it seems to me you could have given us the benefit of the doubt, Mm. which is a very weird thing to say. But when then the women are brought back into the village, what roles do they play? Quel surprise! They're serving at table, they're washing clothes, and they're love interests. Mm -hmm. Petra is one of them who falls in love with Chico, and she's really the only woman who speaks in the entire movie. Yeah, and let me just note for the record that women also can fight and shoot guns, (laughs) you know, and wield machetes. So the fact that the men in the village never even considered, or the Magnificent Seven never even considered this possibility is kind of unimaginable to me, 
but as a woman watching this film, it reminded me of all the things that are wrong with Western, were wrong with Westerns for so long. I agree with that pan of the movie that I read to you in the very beginning from The Hollywood Reporter, which came out in 1960, the year that it was released. Given what the movie is and, you know, it isn't and isn't trying to be a feminist movie, (laughs) but the introduction of the love interest really does sabotage the movie. I mean, I agree with the reviewer that it actually makes the movie worse. So I'm in a weird position where I think the falling in love and all the portrayals of love are completely cheesy, but they get me right where it counts. I'm like, oh, that's so cute. But that has to do with your love of the heroes, though, not her. Mm -hmm. If they fell in love with one of their horses, you would have the same experience, (laughs) the same feeling. (laughs) Were you in my head while I was watching it? Because that was my dream. I know Steve McQueen's going to kiss that horse. I know he's going to kiss that horse. (laughs) And by the way, Steve McQueen, incredibly dreamy in this film. Mm. But the whole point of that love relationship between Petra and Chico is all about Chico. It's Chico's redemption story. You know, she's just standing in there. And there, I think, Lee, you're right. He could have been redeemed through loving a rock. I mean, anything that was going to stay in the village, had he fallen in love with it, his redemption story would be the same. And so I want to intensify the problem here, namely that the one character who is a woman and who speaks is there as a prop for Chico's redemption. She's maybe the prefigure of the, what is it called? The magical pixie dream girl? Yeah, I mean, Chico could have fallen in love with grinding maize or whatever, and it would have given him just as much reason to return to the village. (laughs) Jason made a face at that like he did when I said that wax smells like bees. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you don't think that people can be in love with grinding maize? I think they can. Hey, it may not be your kink, but it's somebody's, (laughs) right? right? (laughs) But my large your point is that the film, as most Westerns, in fact, probably all Westerns, exhibit is the evacuation of an understanding of social and economic and political relations that not only include women, but are in many ways built on the very necessity of women doing their jobs or playing their roles or whatever. So I was saying to Rick before we started recording this that I I had never seen this film before. I honestly didn't watch it until last night. I started at 10 p.m. I did not know it was a two-hour film. Nobody (laughs) warned me of that. And for the first 15 minutes or so, I was like, ugh, this is a standard Western. I've seen 20,000 of these. Like, I'm not really that interested. Now, it took about 15 minutes, but I got sucked in. I mean, it is funny, It is engaging, it is entertaining, but the moment they introduced this woman into the story, I thought, oh, it just got a lot worse. (laughs) I want to just say that I think it is really funny. And I don't have a theory about the use of comedy in this, but it starts already at the beginning when Yul Brenner is driving this hearse against the wishes of the townsfolk, the hearse with the indigenous person in it. Steve McQueen drives shotgun and Steve McQueen turns to Yul Brenner and says, were you elected? And he says, no, but I was nominated real good. And like, I don't know what that means, but it's just funny. And I do think this is a, again, mid 20th century 
innovation of the Western. Mm. I think we see this in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which also, by the way, was kind of ruined by a stupid romance. But like, <laughs> we see this introduced in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is like, you've got these road hard and hung up wet gunslingers doing awful things in morally complicated ways that's nevertheless both entertaining and engaging. But the fact that they also have a sense of humor makes them relatable. It's really the sense of humor that makes them relatable. I mean, none of us are gunslingers. None of us here are gunslingers anyway, <laughs> right? So the humor in the film is really, really important. Yeah. But as a woman watching this film, I have to just like slot it in with the rest of terrible, misogynist, 20th century film. And I know we had this conversation in our very first Tobar Sessions Goes to the Movies conversation about The Godfather, but yeah. it's worth saying to all the people who say... I love this film. This is one of the great films. Don't you think that there's a problem with saying this is one of the great films, even though it absolutely relies on this obscenely sexist trope? And I want to highlight and expand on a point you made earlier, Lee, because I think this gets to the issue you're raising really deeply, namely that both in the movie and in capitalism in general— you said earlier that it relies on the jobs of women, and then you corrected yourself to say the roles of women. And I mm -hmm. think in that correction is just the point, that there is a need for the work traditionally associated with women to be unwaged work in order for capitalism to work itself out. That mm -hmm. is, if we had to pay for all of that labor, like we do other labor, capitalism would cease to function. And so the very order itself is written the very moment that women are written out. Mm -hmm. And so the order depends on the contribution of women, but the necessarily unacknowledged contribution of women. And the absolute erasure of rape as one of the things that the bandits took from the villagers, that the villagers suspected that the magnificence, the heroes, might take from the villagers and that persists as surplus value that the village has to be pillaged. Yeah. And that it's just one crime among the stealing of the gold and the taking of the crops. And oh, yeah, then there was also rape. Yeah. That's also incredibly offensive. And on this point, I mean, I think the issue of Chico's redemption and the redemption of gunslingers in general through him is... Once again, another point where this movie differs from The Seven Samurai. There's a romance in The Seven Samurai, too, between one of the samurai, Katsushiro, and a woman from the village, Shino. But it's found out by her father, and it is stopped. There's a tragic scene where he watches her join the other women harvesting, and he joins the other samurai in the last battle. He survives, but their relationship does not have a future. And I think this ties into one of the other things I think is interesting about The Seven Samurai. As Gilles Deleuze says, the question underlying the film, Seven Samurai, is who are the samurai and what is their place in this world? And in the end of the film, it has a much more of a tragic bent to it. They kind of figure out that they're the people who've been exploiting people like the peasants. The peasants hate them. I mean, in the film, they find a cache of hidden samurai weapons in the village. The peasants have stolen from samurai that they've found, who they've killed or let them die and stolen their weapons. So it's much 
much more of an antagonistic relationship. And you get the sense that at the end of the movie, the samurai realize that not only do they have no place in this world, but they never should have existed in the first place. The mm. violence that they're part of should never have existed in the first place. And they should disappear, right? That's where the whole line is. You know, the victory is the villagers. They have won. Mm. We haven't won. Magnificent Seven echoes that same line, but it doesn't have the same relationship to this idea that the gunslinger never should have existed in the first place. Mm. There is a sense in which Chico can join the village, he can be both gunslinger and farmer, and that possibility is foreclosed in the initial vision, and there's a sense in which the violence of the initial movie and the peace that they make possible cannot coexist, whereas I think the Magnificent Seven suggests that the violence and the peace can coexist on some level. I want to disagree with that last point, but I agree with you that there is no sense in The Magnificent Seven that the gunslinger should never have existed. In fact, on the contrary, in various side conversations, Lee pointed to one where one of them got paid a lot to solve certain problems, like do certain jobs. They all indicate that there was a role for the gunslinger. But that role is over. The world as it is now, or society as it is now, has no place for people like them. The old man says to Yul Brenner's character, Chris, at the end, you know, you could stay here. And Yul Brenner basically says, you know we can't. You know we can't. The villagers don't mm-hmm. want us. And so we got to go. It's just after that that Chris utters the line, we lost, we always lose. And so I think it has the same tragic bent, except it doesn't have this perhaps more important moment of we never should have existed. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Secondly, Mm -hmm. the fact that Chico lays down his gun before joining his love interest is a sign that he can't be a gunslinger and a farmer too, Mm -hmm. that he's got to make a choice and he's made it. Well, you guys, I am full of popcorn and soda and (laughs) ready to get out of not only this theater, but also the bar. Any final thoughts about The Magnificent Seven before we close up? So I just want to give one of my favorite funny lines. And most of the funny lines in the movie are put in Vin, Steve McQueen's character's mouth. So the old man asks them how their preparations are going for when Calvera comes back. And Steve McQueen says, one time in Tucson, a man jumped off a 10-story building. And on every floor, people could hear him say, so far, so good. (laughs) There's a moment of humor, but I think Steve McQueen throughout is always convinced that this is a disastrous thing they're taking on, yet he's willing to do it. And he's one of the only three who survive in the end. Spoiler alert again. And as I said before, he's very dreamy in this movie. Agreed. And he passed up a job as a grocery store clerk, right? (laughs) There's good work in that. I think one of the funniest scenes in the movie early on is when they're at the bar with the villagers and the villagers like, hey, I don't blame you if you take the grocery store job over this. That's good, reliable work. People always need groceries. They only occasionally need gunslingers. And Yul Brenner looks at Steve McQueen with this look on his face 
it says, that's right, it's good, steady work. I just want to say as a final thought, I want to give a shout out to Charles Bronson in this film. So Mm -hmm. most contemporary listeners will probably know Charles Bronson from the Death Wish movies, you know, but in this film, he actually plays a incredibly sensitive, Mm -hmm. complex character. You know, they kind of catch him at the beginning and he becomes a member of the Magnificent Seven because he was a very sought after and well-paid gunslinger, but he had found himself in a position where he's just like literally chopping wood for his breakfast. But he agrees to go along. And in the course of the Magnificent Sevens going to the village, He really becomes attached to the villagers. We later learn that that's because he is himself half Mexican. And there's a trio of young boys from the village that attach themselves. They say, you know, all of us young boys, we drew names of the Magnificent Seven. And if you fall, if you die, we'll pick up your gun and we'll make sure that there are fresh flowers on your grave every day. And he really does connect to these kids. And it is, in my view, one of the most touching moments of the film Mm -hmm. and a sort of underplayed moment because it does maybe perfectly capture all of the moral and political and social complications and nuances that are involved in this whole dynamic. And if you only know Charles Bronson from the Death Wish movies, this is a Charles Bronson that you've never seen. And he has, I think, one of the most amazing soliloquies in the entire movie where he chastises the children for calling their fathers cowards. Yeah. And he says, you think I have courage because I have a gun? That's not courage. You know who has courage? Your fathers. Mm-hmm. They have the courage to, I'm paraphrasing now, they have the courage to put seeds in the ground, whether they know they're going to grow or not. They have the courage to go out every day and support you and your brothers and sisters. Those are the ones who have courage. And, you know, that brought a little tear to my eye. (laughs) Well, guys, as they say at the end of the Magnificent Seven, we're like the wind. Podcasters, (laughs) our time passes and (laughs) others come by. But we're looking forward to a long, excellent season of Hotel Bar Sessions. We're still planning it out. We don't have the whole season done yet. So definitely check us out on Twitter, support us on Patreon, or visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com and give us some support or suggestions. Guys, with that, I know nobody's going to call a cab, but who's willing to escort me to the elevator? (laughs) I'm happy to. (laughs) All right, guys. Catch you next time. Bye. 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 We'll be right back.